Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 139. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves, you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb. Um, So, you know, if you're on your period or if you're in pain, you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them. I know you can have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top which is um what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing so um i would love to do that but um i don't have a bath so i can't but if you have a bath um then you know i think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain so if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk, and they deliver worldwide. And to honour Pride Month, I just want to remind everyone, whoever you are, you are absolutely welcome here, whether you're trans, non-binary, gay, bisexual, whatever your sexual orientation and however you identify, you are welcome here. Endometriosis doesn't discriminate and nor should we, in my opinion, and I'm sure in the opinion of many of you who are listening. So please know that you're welcome here. I do my best to only use the term women when I'm talking about a specific study where they've done study on women or in a historical context where, you know, for example, medicine has historically been focused on men as opposed to women, that kind of thing. So I'm always learning and doing my best to make this an inclusive community. And I would, yeah, I would love your feedback if you ever want to give it. But I just wanted to remind you that you are absolutely welcome here. Okay, so I'm really excited about this episode. It's been one that I've been sitting on for a while because I wasn't sure how to break it down, but I think that in terms of how many episodes, but I think I've I think I've got it. It can be a lot to take in at first. So I've tried to simplify it. Um and I'm gonna sort of do a series on this couple of episodes so you guys can digest it in little, yeah, smaller pieces because there are kind of moving parts but this is where we're going to start. So today I'm talking about hypothalamic pituitary adrenal dysfunction. It is a mouthful. Um, So for ease, it's called HPA axis dysfunction. And for the most part, that's how I'm going to refer to it in this episode. If you haven't heard of HPA axis dysfunction, you might be more familiar with the term adrenal fatigue. And yes, if you're thinking adrenal fatigue was sort of debunked as not being real, you'd be correct. But HPA axis dysfunction is very, very real. And there is a huge wealth of research and evidence behind it. You can 
put into PubMed and there is tons of research. Adrenal fatigue was essentially, I think, an attempt to describe what's happening with HPA axis dysfunction, but it was oversimplified. It oversimplified the process and it made it seem like the adrenal sort of ran out of energy, which isn't what happens and misses a big part of the story and, and the process. I imagine originally when the term was coined, it did come with a full explanation of HPA axis dysfunction, but I think eventually through the spreading of social media, maybe it perhaps lost its meaning. That's kind of what I'm thinking could have happened there. But anyway, the bottom line is HPA axis dysfunction is very real. It's completely acknowledged by the medical community and it's incredibly prevalent within the endo and chronic pain community. And it may be the root cause behind your fatigue. And to be honest, I'm going to put myself out on a limb here. I think it is the root cause behind fatigue with many people with endometriosis. And really, we do have the evidence and studies to suggest this. I think that the medical community just hasn't caught up with that. And I think that certain um, bodies, like, for example, charities, maybe just haven't really, yeah, haven't looked into this. So a lot of people say they don't know why there's fatigue with endometriosis, but I think this is one of the reasons why. Um, it's not necessarily the endometriosis itself that's causing the fatigue. I think the inflammation definitely in part will be doing it, but I think the HPA axis dysfunction is playing a key role here. So if you're finding yourself exhausted all the time and you feel overwhelmed by life a lot of the time, I really encourage you to keep listening. I think that this is going to be hopefully a life-changing episode for you. So in order to understand HPA axis dysfunction, we need to break down the system behind it. So the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is a system consisting of the hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain found at the base of the brain, the pituitary gland, which is a gland found at the base of the brain as well, and the adrenal glands, and they're found above the kidneys. So this system works together to regulate our stress response and also to regulate our circadian rhythm, which is like the internal body clock that governs our sleep-wake cycle. So let's begin first by understanding how the HPA axis controls our stress response, and then I'll talk you through how it controls our sleep-wake cycle and why this can then end up causing fatigue if something goes wrong with the system. So first, our hypothalamus, in a, in a situation of stress, our hypothalamus alerts the pituitary gland of a stressor, and then the pituitary gland sends a signal to the adrenal glands to go about making stress hormones and stress neurotransmitters to power us through the situation. So the brain and adrenals respond by first releasing adrenaline, so once they've had this signal from the pituitary gland, they release adrenaline, which is released quickly, but it also subsides quickly. And then 15 minutes later, cortisol and a hormone called DHEA are released. And these guys hang around for several hours in the system. And adrenaline and cortisol increase blood flow to organs like the heart, brain, and muscles. They reduce blood flow from non-essential organs like the digestive tract and reproductive system. And they trigger the release of stored glucose and fat so that you have the energy to fight or run, right? So the stress response is known as the flight or fight response because it's our response that kicks in when the body and the brain believe that we're in danger. So we need the energy to fight or run. 
And then DHA acts as a buffer to counteract some of the damaging effects that cortisol can cause. There are many other roles of DHA, but in this instance, this is kind of one of the key roles it plays. So an important difference to note between adrenaline and cortisol in terms of pain in relation to us with endo is that adrenaline is inflammatory. Yeah. Initial that initial stress response triggers inflammation because the body is anticipating that there may be an injury or infection that needs to be addressed, right? So the body doesn't really the body's not waiting to find out if the stress was a cut. The body is like, oh, there's stress. We're, you know, we might get bitten by a tiger, thinking, go back to caveman days when we were first evolving. The body is like anticipating there's going to be an injury. So it releases the inflammatory white blood cells first to make sure that. We, we survive if we do have an injury. So for example, if the stressor was that we cut ourselves, the inflammatory white blood cells would help to heal the area and fight off any bacteria that may have entered the wound. However, long-term, that inflammation would become damaging. So 15 minutes later, cortisol is released, which is actually anti-inflammatory in the short term. And so it brings down inflammation to healthy levels. And I'm going to dive into the link between chronic cortisol output and pain in future episodes. So this is kind of the separate, you know, in the beginning, I said I was going to do a couple of episodes on this. I am going to talk about HPA axis dysfunction and pain specifically in a separate episode. I'm going to dive into it a little bit in this just to give you guys some context, but we'll go into it in 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 more depth in, the, in another episode. But just keep in mind that in the right levels, cortisol is anti-inflammatory. I think uh, the reason why I want to highlight this is because I think that this can sometimes be confusing. And before I did my training, even at the beginning of my training, I found this confusing because different teachers were were kind of making blanket statements without breaking down the process. So you might hear people talk about stress being inflammatory. So to clear that up, the acute initial response is inflammatory, right? So the short-term response is inflammatory for 15 minutes. Then it becomes anti-inflammatory when cortisol is released. And these events are totally normal. This is a totally normal stress response. It starts off inflammatory, it ends anti-inflammatory. It becomes a problem when cortisol remains elevated or keeps being triggered continuously. That's when stress becomes inflammatory, when the stress is chronic. Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind. So back to the process. Adrenaline eventually lowers down, but cortisol is left remaining in the system until after the stressor passes, and it should reduce, like cortisol levels should reduce after a few hours. Adrenaline is basically the hormone that gets us through the acute moment of stress, whereas cortisol carries us through the aftermath, so to speak. So to kind of put this in context, for example, some of you may remember that we had a crazy flood in our house. Um, a pipe burst in the road and because we're in a basement flat it came through our ceiling whilst we were away and we came back from our holiday to water pouring through the ceiling um not just like a drip like pouring like like waterfall level water and and everything was floating um so in that moment when we discovered the flood it was adrenaline that got me through getting out our most valuable belongings trying to turn the mains off, calling plumbers in the middle of the night. It was like three in the morning, that kind of thing. The kind of instant like emergency uh, kind of procedures. You know, if you were in 
I'm just going to put this in, I'm just going to say this again, trigger warning, I'm going to talk about car accident, but you know, in my car accident, it was adrenaline that powered me through getting out of the car, um, despite having multiple injuries and a broken spine, because I was like, you know, my friend, I thought my friend had died. So I, the most important thing was that I got out of the car so the paramedics could get to her. So it was adrenaline that got me through that moment, right? But it was cortisol that got me through the rest of the situation. And it's the same with this, um, the flood situation. In that acute moment, it was adrenaline, but it was cortisol that stayed with me that kept me awake on the drive to my mum's at 5 a.m. because we had nowhere to sleep. That got me through the next day because I, I had like back-to-back meetings that were really important. So I had to get up and I had to work despite feeling super stressed out. It was cortisol that stayed with me when we moved into a temporary Airbnb because they couldn't, we couldn't get back into our house for several weeks. It was cortisol that stayed with me as we navigated all the stresses of trying to work in a new home without all of our belongings, with dodgy internet and a drowned laptop charger that I needed to replace. It was cortisol that stayed with me during that time. And this is actually where the problem occurs, right? Because the cortisol should have gone, right? After a couple of hours, the stress, the stressful situation in an ideal situation should have past, right? But it didn't. We stayed in this stressful situation for for several weeks, especially because we had other things going on at the time, really, really stressful things going off on at the same time. So this is where the problem occurs. Originally, this stress response was designed to get us out of acute moments of danger alive. So back in caveman days, the system helped us to outrun a wild animal that was hunting us or to fight another tribe that was threatening ours. And the stakes were really high, but the outcomes were usually pretty black and white. You know, we either died or we survived. If we got away from the wild animal and found our way back to the safety of our tribe, our stress response would have lowered and we would have moved into the rest and digest mode, which is a part of our nervous system responsible for digestion and repair, etc. So we sort of exist for optimum health. We exist on a spectrum between the rest and digest part of our nervous system and the flight or fight response, right? The flight or fight response kicks in when we need to survive and then the rest of Rest and digest is is the system that we're in for the rest of the time that's helping to us to repair and to recover and to heal and to rest. But in modern society, the stakes aren't that high, but the situations aren't as simple either. Our brains, our nervous systems haven't evolved. Technology has evolved, society has evolved, culture has evolved, but our Our brains haven't, so we are still stuck in this sort of caveman day thinking. And we're now bombarded by stresses every day. Emails from colleagues who make us anxious, constant sensational headlines and 24-hour news cycles, traffic jams, struggling to balance our work and family or social lives, endless to-do lists, right? You get the picture, I'm sure, and this is without having chronic health conditions on top. And equally, it's not just emotional stresses that are are stresses to our body and brain, but physical stresses that appear to the body as a threat or danger. So chronic inflammation, a low-lying infection or condition like SIBO that hasn't gone away, blue light exposure is a stressor, late nights, physical pain, etc. And these stresses to the brain are no different to the wild animal that's hunting us or was hunting us in caveman days. The brain sees it as the same, a threat to our lives. 
and the stress response goes off as a result. So this means that we're potentially operating in a state of flight or fight the majority of the time, which means we're experiencing elevated levels of cortisol on a regular basis. And cortisol is our survival hormone. It's great in small doses to keep us alive when we need it. It's not great for long-term exposure at high levels. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. This episode is sponsored by my new free download, Natural Pain Relief Toolkit for Endometriosis. This four-page guide includes herbal remedies and teas that are in your cupboards already, safe pain relieving supplements, essential oils for self-massage, and much more. There's a method for everyone, whatever your taste and your budget. Some of the options literally range from 40p to £10, so there is a range of things to support you. And the chances are that you're going to have some of these in your house already. So I'm hoping that this is a really accessible toolkit for you to get started. You know how I work. I like to make changes from our foundations of health, you know, nutrition, lifestyle. It's not about slapping on a load of like pain relief and supplements um, and kind of masking the symptoms. But sometimes we need a bit of help to get out the pain so we can actually begin to make some changes and feel better. And these are the strategies that I use with my clients when they're stuck in the in a rut, they don't have the energy um, and they're having too much pain to actually be able to take the first step forward. So we just want to ease those symptoms, get them out of pain so we can begin this coaching journey together. So I'm hoping that if you're at this moment struggling to see the woods for the trees and get through some of your current pain that these methods are going to help you. To get your copy, go to the link in my show notes or just go directly to my website and the link is on the homepage. Long-term exposure to cortisol can damage the gut, causing leaky gut and negative shifts in our gut microbiome. And it can also cause chronic inflammation. I mean, it does cause chronic inflammation um, when it's at chronically high levels. It can cause a suppressed immune system, increased blood sugar, because remember, part of cortisol's job is to raise raise energy levels so we can fight or run. And it does this by releasing glucose from our cells into our bloodstream, which then obviously elevates our blood sugar levels. So when we're chronically stressed, we have high blood sugar levels. And it can cause low progesterone, which results in estrogen dominance, lowered thyroid function, and lack of ovulation. So this episode isn't about the effects of stress, but if you're interested to learn more about some of these that I just mentioned, I discuss it with Nicole Jardim in one of our podcast episodes, which I've linked to in the show notes, and I cover the process in detail in my course, um, Live and Thrive with Endo. So you, if you want to learn more about the effects of stress on your kind of fertility and your hormone balance, um, and you want to do the course, and you can get on the waiting list for that now because it's out in a couple of weeks, and the link is in um, my show notes. So, back to this process. In short, the body knows that it's a problem to have elevated 
cortisol levels in you know in long in long term and so eventually it adapts to protect itself firstly the body has a sort of internal cortisol shutdown mode the high levels of cortisol in the body trigger a feedback loop in the brain which encourages the brain to actually lower cortisol output so the adrenals stop producing cortisol so much so the cortisol reaches a certain level and then the adrenals actually stop making cortisol. Another possibility is that the adrenals may also become resistant to the signals from the brain to make cortisol, so they lower cortisol production in that way. A third possibility is that the cortisol receptors, known as glucocorticoid receptors, become resistant. So cortisol may be being released, but it's not actually doing its job because it can't fit. If you think about cortisol like a key, it can't fit into the locks in the cells to actually do its job. So there are actually multiple different avenues for cortisol to become dysfunctional and lowered, but these are some of the main ones. But in the research, there are actually kind of multiple multiple ways that this happens. And it, and it actually seems to vary um, on the situation and the person. So this might seem like a good thing as cortisol is now lowered and is no longer damaging the body. But the issue now is that the HPA axis regulation of the circadian rhythm is dysregulated. So now what I'm going to do is walk you through what this means. What does HPA axis dysfunction mean for the circadian rhythm? So cortisol isn't just your stress hormone. It's your waking hormone. It's the hormone that gets you up in the morning and powers you through your day. And at night, cortisol lowers and our sleep hormone melatonin rises to allow us to drift off. And if you looked at your cortisol patterns on a graph, it would kind of look like a roller coaster. So your cortisol levels start to elevate before we wake up, and it reaches its peak high about an hour after waking. So this is when we should feel our most awake, which isn't the case for many of us with endo, right? I would imagine um, from my conversations with clients that this isn't normally when many of us feel the most awake. After that, cortisol begins to decline fairly sharply throughout the morning until about 12pm. So this is why many people find themselves needing an extra caffeine boost at around 11. And at midday, the decline does continue, but it's less dramatic. Your levels hit another drop at about 3pm, which again is why people tend to get that afternoon slump. And then they peter out as the afternoon and evening continues. And this is to allow melatonin to rise because cortisol actually suppresses melatonin. So we need it to peter out for melatonin to rise. Now, what can happen with HPA axis dysregulation is that if you're chronically stressed, you may have high levels of cortisol at first. These may be at their highest in the morning. So you wake up feeling stressed and tense straight away. Maybe you find your sleep is disturbed in the early hours of the morning because your cortisol is elevating whilst you're asleep, but it's elevating too high. But your levels might also be high at night, which will suppress your melatonin. So you might find yourself exhausted, but you're wired and you're unable to switch off when you go to bed. You might also be gaining weight around your middle. You might have trouble stabilizing your blood sugar levels and you may be experiencing fertility issues or hormonal imbalances. These are all classic signs of high cortisol. Then over time, the cortisol levels lower. And this really depends on the individual as to when this happens, but it can be quickly over the space of 
of weeks in some cases, but I have seen it take much longer. People talking about feeling stressed for a really, really long time and being able to cope and then kind of eventually just feeling depleted. And the cortisol pattern also varies from person to person. So, you know, they've gone for a while with high cortisol levels and now the body is starting to dysregulate. Now the body is trying to stop these high cortisol levels. And for some people, this looks like if you looked at it on the graph, right, they would have lower levels than usual at certain points in the day. So they tend to feel like they have dramatic crashes crashes in energy. Or for some people, they have low levels all day long, but high cortisol levels at night. And this is when, you know, these people feel exhausted all the time, but they can't sleep at night. Or they get they fall asleep, but they struggle to stay asleep. Or they might have low levels constantly. And that's when someone is really, really fatigued. Their levels are just kind of flatlining all the time. Now, these scenarios manifest a little differently depending on the pattern of cortisol dysfunction that someone has, but the telltale sign symptoms are generally the same and they include chronic fatigue, brain fog, waking up tired no no matter how much sleep you get, feeling unable to cope with everyday stresses and bigger stresses, you know, like COVID, feeling really overwhelmed by that. Continuous feelings of overwhelm as the body struggles to respond adequately to stress because it just doesn't have enough cortisol to, to get it through. Anxiety, depression, blood sugar dysregulation, exercise intolerance. So you might find it hard to do exercise or you find it difficult to recover afterwards. You may find yourself getting ill easily. Dizziness, especially when going from seated to standing. Frequent energy crashes, especially mid-morning and mid-afternoon as cortisol begins to form. Insomnia, disturbed sleep or feeling suddenly energised at night. Um, and and kind of cravings for pick-me-ups. So cravings for cortisol, um, caffeine, cravings for sugar, cravings for carbs. And if any of this resonates with you, I really wouldn't be surprised. Low cortisol output is actually associated with nearly all chronic pain conditions, especially pelvic pain conditions, endometriosis, and fibromyalgia. And in one study of 92 women with endo and 82 healthy volunteers, they found that the women with endo and chronic pelvic pain had low levels of cortisol, despite reporting higher levels of stress in comparison to the healthy volunteers. And they had noticeable low cortisol awakening responses, which is that rise in cortisol level we need to be able to wake up in the morning. So they were waking really depleted in the mornings. So let's look at that a little bit deeper. Because pain is a stressor to the body, the cortisol output, you know, when we first experienced this endometriosis pain, when it when it first began, the cortisol output is likely to be normal for the situation or high, right? Depending on how bad the pain is. But over time, if we become anxious, stressed, worried, or scared of our pain, which is, you know, a totally natural response to endometriosis, then over time, our HPA axis becomes dysregulated and our cortisol levels deplete because the cortisol levels have been high for so long in response to the pain-fear cycle, right? We're getting pain, we then become fearful of it, that elevates our stress response, that stress response elevates our pain, becomes this vicious cycle, and so high cortisol just becomes the norm. And in fact, 
the high cortisol type of HPA axis dysfunction from chronic stress. So if you've got high cortisol levels from being chronically stressed, whether the stress is from pain or from something else entirely, that has been shown to trigger the onset of some chronic pain conditions and worsen existing chronic pain. Then in response, cortisol eventually becomes depleted and the pain continues because the protective anti-inflammatory properties of cortisol are now lowered. So if you go back to what I was telling you in the beginning, you know, the initial response is inflammatory, then cortisol kicks in and it's anti-inflammatory. But then if the cortisol continues to stay elevated, it's inflammatory. But then if cortisol lowers, that's also inflammatory. So essentially, high levels of cortisol contribute to inflammation and pain. But so does low cortisol, because if it's really low, then we don't have the protective properties, the protective anti-inflammatory properties of cortisol. So we want a healthy level of cortisol for optimal pain regulation. We don't want too high and we don't want too low. Both of those scenarios are not going to help with inflammation and pain. So the stress of the pain doesn't go away, but our body is now less able to deal with it. Remember, cortisol provides us with the energy to deal with stress. It literally provides us with the glucose and resources and resources we need to power our body for a stressful situation. And without those, we may feel unable to cope with the demands of everyday stresses or bigger events. And usually with depleted cortisol levels, our body begins to rely more heavily on adrenaline. So when we're stressed, we may find that we experience symptoms of high adrenaline, like shaking or increased heart rate, maybe palpitations, feeling jittery and wired, feeling anxious, but yet we feel unable to cope with the situation because we don't have enough cortisol to power us through. And I'm going to talk about this in another episode, but I just want to also state that Many people who have chronic pain conditions have experienced some kind of trauma in their past or some kind of situation that has exposed them to chronic stress. So it might not have been the endometriosis that elevated your cortisol in the first place, actually, right? It might have been something else. And then you've then potentially even had pain kick in because of this, you may have always had endometriosis present and not have actually felt anything because we know that's, we know that can be a possibility, right? We have people who have lots of endometriosis and yet they don't feel anything. And then we have people who have low levels of endometriosis, growth and lesions, but they have high levels of pain. And so you may have had endometriosis for a long time and not felt anything. And then you've gone through a really stressful situation and it's prolonged your chronic, uh, it's prolonged your cortisol levels. And then this has triggered the onset of chronic pain. Or you then had low levels, your levels have become depleted and that's become an inflammatory situation. So it may have not been the endo that kicked off the HP axis dysfunction in the first place. It may have been something else that has wired your body to respond to stress in a unhealthy way. This is quite common. There's a lot of information um, on chronic stress and autoimmune conditions and chronic pain and childhood trauma and autoimmune conditions and chronic pain. So I'm going to dive into this in, in a separate episode. But Endometriosis could have exasperated this, 
but it could have also been something else. It could have started earlier than the endo, right? And the endo's just made it worse. So now you understand what HPA access dysfunction is, what can we do about it? The good news is HPA access dysfunction can be repaired and there are very key, often simple steps to repairing it. And for us, those for us, those of us with endo specifically, it's about giving our bodies reliable patterns in the day to normalize our circadian rhythm and changing our response to stress and pain. So in a future episode, which will be out very soon, I'll provide you with some of the initial steps for repairing your HPA access and alleviating your fatigue. And I'm also going to do another episode that dives deeper into the pain, cortisol and inflammation connection that we've sort of started to dip our toes into in this episode because it's fairly complex and it really deserves an episode in itself. But the key thing to remember here is that your short-term stress response is healthy and totally normal. Cortisol is helpful in normal levels and it powers you through your day. But if cortisol is chronically elevated, it's chronically high, that will cause an inflammatory response that's damaging to the body. And so the body will lower it in multiple different ways. The body will lower your cortisol levels, but that then has a negative effect on your circadian rhythm, on your internal body clock. You're not going to have enough cortisol to power you through the day. So you're going to feel fatigued, overwhelmed, brain fogged, and also it's going to affect your inflammation and pain levels. So that's a key takeaway today. And we're going to explore how to repair your HPA access in a future episode. And then we're going to also explore the pain, cortisol and inflammation connection in another episode. So I really hope this information has been useful for you. I know for many of my clients, when they learn about this and we see their low cortisol levels on the test, it makes total sense to them. So I hope this has given you some answers. And I'm going to, in the show notes, I'm going to provide you with a couple of um, example graphs so you can see what this cortisol, like a healthy cortisol level should look like and, and what an unhealthy cortisol level looks like. And if you want to test your own cortisol levels, you can order what is known as a CAR test, which is a cortisol awakening response test. And this measures your levels of cortisol in the morning and into the night. And I've provided you with a couple of test options in the show notes so you can order, order them yourselves um, and see what, see what your test results are. So I really hope this episode was useful. Please let me know. Please, you know, send me an Instagram DM or email me. I would love to hear if this, you know, if you resonated with this, if you notice that you have symptoms like this, um, if this has given you an extra piece of the puzzle, I would love to know more. So yeah, I hope this is helpful and I will share with you the next steps in a future episode. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. 
as always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. Really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Thank you.